I could tell I'm gonna miss. I mean, half half of the sight picture at the time of the sight picture, the crosshairs are off him. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into the Hunt the High Country podcast. This is Brad Carter with AltitudeOutdoors.com. Now, many of you who follow our podcast or follow our website know that we're pretty passionate about hunting mule deer. So today's episode is a great one. We sit down with Robbie Denning from RockSlide.com and talk about his book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. But we go beyond that into some in-depth questions some in- and really kind of pick Robbie's brain about how to hunt those big, elusive mule deer bucks. So if your passion's mule deer like mine, this is an episode you'll want to tune into. Guys, our goal here at AltitudeOutdoors.com is to help you be more successful on your hunts. That's why we do this podcast, and hopefully this information helps you in your hunts this fall. Check out our website at www.AltitudeOutdoors.com. There's some links like to Robbie's book, to some articles that he posted on winter mortality and some things like that. I will link them on our website on the post for this podcast episode. So if you guys are tuning in on iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, head over to AltitudeOutdoors.com, go to the podcast tab, and you'll see all of our podcast episodes. And you can jump into this one, and you can see those links and find out where you can pick up Robbie's book if you're interested. I put it on my top three list for mule deer hunting books that I've ever read. And uh, as you'll see in this podcast, Robbie knows what he's talking about when it comes to big deer. Thanks again for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. That being said, let's jump in here with Billy Kennington, myself, and Robbie Denning. Robbie, it's great to have you with us. Hey, we're here with much trouble, but we all made it, didn't we? Yeah, sometimes we have technical difficulties, but it's all good. So uh, for those of you out there, um, if you haven't heard of Robbie Denning, if you're a big mule deer hunter, you've probably been living under a rock. So we've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Um, Robbie is, is an exceptional uh, mule deer hunter, um, has done quite a bit over the years and has just killed some, some great deer, um, not only in the early season, but also um, you know hard horn as well as in the rut with multiple weapons. Um, Robbie is also the, um, the author of the book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. And, and we're, just really, we're just really happy to, to have him on. So Robbie, if you would, would you just uh, kind of introduce yourself and then also talk about uh, your background a little bit and we'll go from there. All right, man. Yeah. Hey, thanks for the introduction. You, you might be overblowing me just a little bit. I, I just like to hunt mule deer and I'm pretty old, so I've been doing it for a long time. So, um, yeah, um, I, I born and raised here in uh, Southeast Idaho, not a long ways from you guys. You're in Afton, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay, great. So man, you're only about 70 miles from me, probably 40 is the, uh, crow flies. Um, I grew up over here. I still live within a mile and a half of the house I grew up in. You could say I haven't made it very far in life, but uh, I love southeast Idaho. Um, I, I got to kind of grow up at the end of the heyday of mule deer. I uh, came from a mule deer hunting family, especially my father. So, you know, I got to be out in the field when our seasons ran a lot later, and there was just more opportunity for big bucks. Uh, there were more around, although, you know, I don't think it's a lot worse now than really than, than it used to be, at least in, in my lifetime. Got the mule deer bug as a young man and 
you know, really wasn't all that successful with mule deer growing up. I, I never killed my first buck till I was 19, but, you know, I went every year from, from the time I was eight years old on with my dad. And then around here, you can start hunting when you're 12. And I shot at a lot of them, um, burned up a lot of six shells. And, um, but, you know, ne- never really was that successful. A lot of people are, are surprised when they talk to me. I'm like, oh, no, I suffered greatly for many years trying to get my first buck. Um, but just really kind of fell in love with it in my early 20s. And, um, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a big buck hunter. That's what lights my fire. I think the big, most of the big buck hunters I meet are the passionate, most ethical. Um, you know, they're joining organizations. They spend a lot of money on licenses, you know. So I'm, I'm happy to be part of that crowd. Uh, nothing against guys that aren't into big bucks. That's great, too. You know, I'm not a very uh, big proponent of making all draw hunts and all that stuff. So there's only big bucks. No, not at all. I think we got to have a variety for a variety of people that are out there. But, you know, as for me, that's usually what I'm trying to tip over is the best one I can find. Well, that being said, let's talk about your 2016 season and uh, that, that deer you were able to harvest last year. Uh, yeah, um, last year, like a lot of years, was, you know, really slow. I start in the summer looking uh, for, for bucks. Um, I apply in multiple states, but I really only try to hunt about two states a year. I, I, I think that's about as much as you can do a really good job on. Um, I've had the too many tag syndrome before and um, come up short just simply because I can't give each area what it needs. And so... Uh, last year I drew a Nevada tag and I drew a Utah tag. And then, um, obviously I had Idaho. Um, most of our seasons are over the counter. The ones I apply for most of the time, if it's a draw hunt or, you know, fairly easy to draw 30% odds, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so I ended up with three tags last year and I started scouting in July on my Nevada tag. That was going to be a muzzleloader hunt. And it was in an area I knew very, very well. I was really excited to get it. Um, it, I had nine points. That sounds like a lot, but the draw odds were only like 15, 20% at that point level. So I was pretty excited to get the tag and I started scouting in July. Again, it was an area I knew really well, but I could not turn over anything bigger than about 175 180 i was down there about five days and that was a pretty efficient five days because you know i'd scouted the unit many times in anticipation of drawing this tag part of the reason why is you know five six years ago that unit was really good um too good according to the nevada division of wildlife in the sense of it just had too many deer their buck to doe ratio was skewed on the high end I didn't even know that was possible, but, you know, I'm not one to bash biologist decisions and they, they just felt like uh, they needed to bring that down a little bit. So they, they doubled the tags in the unit uh, in 2012 and boy, you could just see it 2012. I, I didn't make it down there in 2013, but 2014, it really dropped as far as, you know, number of big bucks. I was typically seeing 180 to 200 inch bucks when I would scout down there. Uh, 2014, I drew the archery tag and scouted it, just did not, I mean, I saw some pretty good bucks, actually better than 2016, but I found a great buck in Idaho that year. And you heard me talk about it a a minute ago, getting the too many tag syndrome. 
I just decided to turn that Nevada tag back and focus on the Idaho buck. And, and like it always is, I ended up not getting him. But uh, 2015 didn't draw Nevada. 2016, back to the beginning of our story, I got the tag, went down there, spent that five days, and I just could not find anything to justify that many points, that many years of scouting. And the tag numbers had just taken the toll on the unit. I just got in there too late. So again, I turned the tag back. That's you know, that's, that's a 250 bucks, still a lot of money around this house. That's an ouch to turn that back. Plus, you know, all your years of thinking, man, I can, I can finally hunt it. So I really just threw myself into Idaho. The Utah tag I has was a rut hunt. So there, and it was a migration hunt. So there was really no scouting to, to do then. I'd already scouted the unit previous years just to make sure I knew where the deer wintered, all that stuff. If I ever drew the tag. So I started scouting Idaho, as you guys should, should know, you're not too far from me. We have been, we have been growing bucks the last five years. You know, the winter's conditions have been great. The winter of 2014-15 was just incredibly mild, um, and then we actually got some rain in the spring, so it was kind of setting ourselves up for a lot of bucks. A lot of times you get a mild winter, you get a drought, and then, then things start to decline, you know, it seems like. So it was the perfect storm. So I was pretty excited last year, uh, started scouting Idaho, um, you know, early August, um, found some Lots of bucks, but nothing, nothing 200, nothing that got me super excited. Of course, you know, I'll still go hunt them. Had a few hit list bucks that I started to focus on. I hunt archery and rifle in Idaho. So I started in uh, early archery season, which is August 30th around here. Started uh, hitting some of those bucks. They're, they're on my blog. And um, just like it always is when you're hunting with a bow, you're usually seeing lots of big bucks, but I never got lined up on one. Uh, September season closed, uh, never fired an arrow. Um, rifle season opens early October around here. So I uh, started hunting some of those other bucks that I'd seen. And you know, I should just tell you, my hit list bucks were like 180 bucks. I talk about that in the book. You know, I'm always looking for something better. But when it, the season rolls around, if I haven't uh, uh, found anything uh, better than that, you know, I moved down to those 180 bucks and, and that's what I hunt. So I didn't turn it over any of those in the early part of the rifle season. I've got an outfitting business here too. So I had to be here during elk season, which was, is mid October. So I had to take about a week off. Obviously I have another job too. Had to take care of all that. Um, then I got back out in the field late October and uh, just started looking again in these honey holes. As you know, deer hunting gets real hard in late October. Just things are changing. They're starting to move a lot more. You think that would make it easier, but they're moving a lot at night as the pre-rut sets in, you know, they're starting to search out does, but they're not hanging with the does. You know, in daylight hours, I found from about the 27th of October on, sometimes you can catch those big bucks with the does, the, just the first few minutes of daylight. So I really make sure I'm out there those days. And um, I had a hunt planned with my, my, my uh, Rockslide partner, Ryan Avery. He was going to get out here in early November. And the unit that we were hunting is, um, it has a controlled hunt in it. It's not very hard to draw, like I said, 30, 40% chance. We both had tags. And he was to arrive the 4th of November. Well, I was out every day from about the 27th on. Uh, you know, I might have missed a day or so in there. And, uh, again, seeing lots of bucks. There was a lot of bucks around last year. There really was. But, you know, I wasn't seeing anything that was, that was really even on my hit list. I couldn't even find those bucks. 
And on the, the morning of the 4th, that was the day Ryan was to arrive, um, I, I spotted a really good buck at about three miles. And I just got to look at him for, you know, like it always is, not very well. You know, he's, he, he was moving through through some uh, Aspen sagebrush type country. The sun was behind me, you know, and a lot of times when, when you got the bright sun behind you and you're looking at him out there at a distance like that, you know, you think that that would be the perfect way to look at them, but it's almost like it's too bright. There's not enough contrast between their antlers and the ground. And, you know, it's, it, and none of this stuff counts at, you know, 500 yards. You can see them well, that's, that's the conditions you want. But at that far, it kind of washes out their antlers a little bit and right. it can make, you know, they're light colored that time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is what I could tell. He was a big bodied deer out of all the deer I had glassed over the last, you know, eight weeks. He definitely had more height than it, it seemed like he had mass. You know, these are things that your brain just kind of subconsciously tells you, you know, you're, you're still never really sure. It's a little bit on faith, but I thought, you know what, we've only got about four days of season left. I, I, I better just hunt that buck. Um, I couldn't get him that morning. In fact, he moved into some really heavy quakey country, Aspen country. And um, so I, I, I got, got back off the mountain. I had to come to town to get Ryan. We got back up there that night three, four o'clock. And it was getting dark pretty early that time of year. And um, I, was, I was back in the saddle where I'd seen him cross that morning, had to come in from a different way. It really wasn't that far from a road. It was, um, uh, in fact, there was a little two track that kind of went right through that country, but I was able to park within about a mile of it and walk in. So not to go on and on, but I sat in that saddle six, seven hours a day from that Friday night, the season closed on Tuesday. I sat in that saddle every morning, every evening. Um, one morning, I didn't sit. I just came in from a different direction to just sometimes you just got to switch it up a little bit, get a little different angle to glass the area. Because even though I'm sitting in a saddle, it's not like I'm sitting on a trail and he's going to come walking down that trail. I'm just thinking, you know, he's going to show up right here somewhere within half a mile. You know, I may have to stalk him, whatever, but it's so thick and brushy. It's, and, and the conditions were so dry, if you remember early November last year, you know, we hadn't had um, uh, any, any weather then. And so you couldn't just go still hunt through there. It was just a sit on your butt and glass game. So I came in from a different angle and sure enough, I saw him. I think that was Sunday morning. So, you know, I'd been what, two days since I'd seen him. And he was, a, if I remember right, 800 yards walking, kind of the same deal as I saw the first day. He just got into the cover um, b- b- before I could make the stock, but I could tell that day he was a lot better than what i thought he was multiple points um not a wide buck you know i figured he was more in that 24 to 26 inch range but he was a big heavy buck carried it all the way up to the top and uh so i was, I was pretty happy when i saw that i got back around there where where, where he where he went um i stayed there the rest of the day except for maybe took about an hour and a half off for lunch and i never saw him again and um uh so if that was sunday i hunted sunday night I hunted Monday most of the day, and um, I just left Ryan alone. He had to go figure it out himself, you know. Um, and you know, we're talking every night. We're, we're you know, we're staying we're staying at camp together. But um, uh, and it's boring. It really is boring when that stuff's happening. You kind of start to doubt your doubt yourself. You know, like is this buck really going to show up? That that Sunday morning uh, uh, spot really helped. But so Monday night, I get back out there. 
I don't know, three o'clock, something like that. I sit down and again, you know, I'm kind of, he can show up anywhere within a half a mile right here. And I, and I start glassing. It's early in the rut by then. That's the, that was the seventh. And so, but it's not like they're out, you know, cruising does, especially in that warm weather. But, you know, I've kind of learned by those dates, they're, they're probably around the does. Don't go spook all the does out of your area just because you think there's not a buck there. And I glassed up a couple of does, you know, a couple of small bucks, you know, it was pretty quiet and about 445, maybe, I think, I think it got dark then about 637, something like that. Um, I spotted a big body deer down in the, you know, just the heavy, nasty stuff. And like it is a lot of times I had to look at him a long time to even tell if it was him, um, had to wait for him to move. Those big bucks are so deliberate, you know, even I find even during the early part of the rut, they're, they're not dumb. They don't just go cruising out there, you know, and 15, 20 minutes or so I figured out it was him. And, um, I had to stop him. He was at about 800 yards and, you know, for, I'm not a long range shooter. Um, I even think that it, that buck, you probably couldn't have got him even if you were a long range shooter because you'd have had to shoot down into all that cover. You never really could see his body that well. So I just thought, man, I got to, I got to cut some distance off of us. And I had sat down, you know, when I sat down, it was like three 30, you know, hot, dry. You don't think you're going to see a deer. And I didn't really pay attention to where I sat down. I'm sitting in sagebrush about that tall. <laughs> and I kind of realized that, whoa, I'm really exposed out here. Well, he's sort of in the cover. I should be okay. I had to walk down the hill about 40 yards to get into, you know, the real heavy quakies, you know, that are over your head and stuff. And then you can just cruise. So I, I, I got up, I snuck down there as quiet as I could, got in the quakies, got out the other edge of them, you know, maybe cut off 50 yards and started glass. And he totally had me pegged. You know, he had gone from just once in a while, you could see his head moving a little bit to just <laughs> looking right up there. He had never looked that way before. I was like, oh, crap. You know, I just put, put all these days into this and now I've spooked him. Now he's not running, but you know, that's as your deer hunters, you know, and they, they give you that alert, you know, those ears forward and they, and, and big bucks, you've probably had this happen. You know, they don't just look for 30 seconds and look away. They just stare and stare. And, you know, I knew he wasn't looking right at me because I was in the brush, but I knew he's, you know, he saw me move. He heard something and, um, I watched him. I can't remember five, 10 minutes. And, you know, he kind of started to twitch his ears a little bit. I, I don't want to say he relaxed, but I could tell he wasn't going to focus on me much, much longer. And he went to sniffing the ground, big bucks during the rut are like a hound dog. And when he put his head down, started sniffing the ground, I took off and, and I was in pretty deep cover. I knew, I knew he'd have a hard time seeing me. And I cut about 400 yards off and got and it's not big wide open country it's like brush patches and you know real rolly stuff and you know it's pretty good for stalking but it's also you know pretty good for losing track of a buck and, and i broke out of of some cover and i had just a little rise in front of me and i thought you know he's probably three four five hundred yards you know he's within striking distance now on the other side of that rise if he didn't move and that's the problem with the chasing does you just you know, they can do anything especially in that much cover and so I snuck up to the rise, kind of did the same routine. Um, got my, I, I carried my tripod with me because I don't carry shooting sticks. And I, and I got the tripod up and started glassing. Took a few minutes and I, and I spotted a white face down there. And he had actually helped me a little bit. He had moved up the hill. 
and the brush was still still pretty thick like you could pretty much only see his head maybe about that much of his back but he was still looking my way he didn't have me pegged though but he was really alert and so i got the gun up Got, got all ready. You know, there's, I'm just like a cartoon character, you know, I'm peeking this much <laughs> over the brush, you know, trying not to make any noise. And you know how it is when you're in those situations. It's just like you're, 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 everything's in a megaphone. You know, you hear everything. You hear your, your sling touch your tripod, you know, you hear your clothes and it's intense. And I'm already thinking I screwed it up. So I'm, I, you know, I'm on pins and needles because all he's got to do is just say enough of this walk fast 10 yards and he's back into a sea of quakies and I'm not going to find him. Got the gun on him. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, I can't even believe I got this far. And I pulled the crosshairs down on him and I had to aim into the top of the brush about that much. Cause I can only see about that much of his back, but you know, he's kind of downhill from me. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to pummel him. I'm shaking so bad. My crosshairs are going like this. And you know, I, I always, if, if there's time, I'll slide my finger into the back of my trigger guard and just before I shoot, just kind of squeeze the trigger and just kind of watch the condition of, of the gun and me. And I could tell I'm going to miss. I mean, half half of the sight picture, of the time of the sight picture, the crosshairs are off him. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. And, you know, the more nervous you are, the more nervous you get. So I just slid off the tripod. And, 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 and by the way, don't look at their antlers once, you, once you've pegged them and, you know, that's the butt. But I, I couldn't help it because, you know, I, for four days I had been waiting for this buck. And, you know, I wanted to peek at his antlers. And, man, he had places on his antlers that I would find out later. I'm going to Spoiled the story. I got the buck. It places on his antlers that were over seven inches kind of up at the top. Well, that's what was making me shake. You know, I mean, I'm thinking it's not like I'm just going to blow it on a 170 here, which, you know, uh, season closes tomorrow. Oh, well, I did the best I, I could. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to blow it on a legitimately, legitimately top five buck that I've ever killed here. So I slid back in the sagebrush. I laid down. I kind of got my composure, you know, not very long, 30 seconds, you know, just and then I slid back up, and he was gone. Oh, the worst nightmare. He was gone. And you know when? And, and by the way, he's—if I remember right—he was about two fifty, which is pretty close. You know, they—they—they. They, they, I think that's where we goof ourselves up a lot of times. You know, we don't think they can hear us at that range. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's close enough that you know he could have heard me lay on the ground. You know, he could hear my foot sliding in the dirt. So I'm thinking, crap, he moved. And, and just the act of, you know, like trading off your rifle and bringing your binoculars up, that's enough movement to, you know, spook him too. And it's so brushy, I, I'm thinking, you know, he could still be right there looking at me, but and I don't see him. So I'm just trying to be really careful is my point. I bring my binoculars up and I start glassing and I, I, I can't see him. I'm like, I, I don't know where he went. And because I'm, I, I'm not able to see very well anyways, I can't really see down below me. There's an open spot down the hill, not very far away, like five yards. And I thought, if I get over there, I'll, I'll at least have a better view of the hill. Moved over there, slow as I could, but as fast as I could. Got the tripod set up, threw the glass back up. And if I remember right, I think I glassed him up immediately. And he had just done what I had been afraid of. He had moved just, you know, four or five yards. But in that country, that's enough where you can't see him. But he had me. He heard me move. He heard me when I got up and moved. He was more alert than ever, stone cold. And now he's looking at exactly where I'm at, where before he's kind of 
looking up on the hill. I'm thinking he's he's going to get away. And and maybe that was the best thing that could have happened because instead of farting around thinking I got to get this right, I got to get this perfect. I just thought I got to kill this buck. He 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 is going away. I, I I'm already lucky that he's still there. I got on the tripod and he, and he was a little more visible then too, so I could hold a little bit lower. You know, where before if I held lower, I was shooting into the bushes. I held a little bit lower. My crosshairs were still doing this, but it was all hair. And I, I let her rip. And, um, you know, I, I don't shoot a muzzle break. Uh, 270 Winchester short mag. Boom. You know, you're so nervous. You're just looking. You know, you just you always want to see him drop. By the, by the way, I hardly ever see him drop. Couldn't see him. Couldn't see him. And I could see the ground where he was standing. I couldn't see him laying there. I've screwed up a few big bucks and I'm an outfitter. I've watched hunters screwed up, screw up bulls too, where you shoot them, you know, you got them, even if you see them laying there and you go walking over there, here I am. And you know, they jump up and take off and you know, you either lose them or you're in for a big track. So I've learned to just, just keep hunting them until you're standing over them with a loaded gun, you know, cause they can do anything anytime. So I spent an hour covering that 250 yards. Um, there were some does about 50 yards from him when I shot and they weren't with him or anything. But when I shot, you know, they got real alert, like, you know, kind of what's going on. And as I snuck down, I kind of kept using them as my gauge is kind of what's going on here. The, is the whole herd upset? You know, is, am I going to blow everything out of here? Cause even though a rifle is really, really loud, if you hunt right and you only shoot once, sometimes as long as they're not under a lot of pressure, They'll, they'll get real alert, but if they don't hear anything else or see anything else, it doesn't blow them out of there like you might think it would. So I was remembering that. I got down the hill, and I could still see the does. They had not moved very much, and it was a good sign. They kept looking over there where he was, and I thought, man, he is probably just laying there. I finally got in a little, little area where I could see the ground, and I could see his butt on the ground. Now, that just still doesn't mean he's dead. You know, I'm thinking he could just be laying there watching, you know, obviously I, I thought I'd hit him. So I spent a little bit longer. I think it was almost dark by the time I got to him and I shot him at like five fifteen. you know, so it, it, it was, it was stressful. I'm sure you've made the shot before. I think the most stressful part of hunting is between the shot and when you find oh, yeah. him. Oh, yeah. And so I got man. over there and and got and and got within I literally could not see him until I was within about ten yards of him. And I could tell he was dead by the way he was lying. And um got over there. I had hit him the first shot. Um I I, I hit him just below the spine. Um what kind of buck was he? He only ended up being about one eighty five, but he didn't have like he didn't have the right forks and everything like his, mm-hmm. his frame doesn't score that well, but he ended up being like an eight by nine. So he had all kinds of stickers that I couldn't even, you know, really see in the few times that I've seen him, but it was the mass. It really was. I wasn't disappointed in the mass. He actually ended up with more mass than what I thought I did, what, what I thought he had. And, and, and I, what I said before, he literally was about, he's in the top five bucks I've ever killed in my, in my whole life, you know, since I was a, since I was a kid. And so I was really, really, really happy with him and, um, just, just thanked God and just can still can't believe how close it was to him getting away. And, you know, I probably went way too long with the story, (laughs) but, um, I'm just, I'm just, I just want everybody to realize that's, that's often how it is. And I, and, and there's some nuggets there I wanted to give guys that they are so alert and if you get a, if you get a look at one 
and you realize just how alert they are. And had I not known that buck was there, because that's what guys forget. They can see you and you can't see them and you think there's nothing around and, you know, you're sniffing and spitting and, you know, digging through your pack and everything. They are hearing that and they will react to it. They will hide. And uh, so that's kind of wanted to weave that in the story because I, I got to witness that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously he, he let his guard down. I got him killed, but I was that close to losing that buck <laughs> like five times. So anyways. That's quite the story. We appreciate you sharing that. For those of you out there, Robbie also is an owner of the website Rockslide, and there's a lot of wonderful content on there. One thing that, that you posted this this winter about an article called Hunting Big Bucks After a Hard Winter. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of now that we've had kind of a hard winter and different things, what we can expect and kind of your experience with hunting big bucks after a hard winter. Yeah, you bet. Um, uh, that was a series I actually started back in January when things started to get really bad. And, you know, and, and thanks for the rock slide mention. If people want to read that article and, and the whole series, it's on, it's on rock slide on the blog. The blog is uh, my portion of the website where I put all my stuff. I started writing on that in January when things got really bad. And, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, born and raised here, it was the most snow I remember around here. And it, it, it came late. That was a good thing. Started about the 10th of December. Uh, but man, by the end of January, we, you know, we were looking at pretty close to record snow amounts. And I've gone through four or five, six hard winters, you know, the, the 83, 84. And I was just, I was only about 15 back then, but I remember it was bad. You go up here on the foothill and just... Dozens of dead deer everywhere. 96, 97 was pretty bad, too. Uh, 92, 93, everybody's still talking about that. And that's the worst one I've ever, ever lived through. I mean, I wrote about it in my book and everything. And then uh, 07, 08 was, mm-hmm. was pretty bad. But 07, 08, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, I think it's very similar to what we just went through. It started late. The deer were in pretty good shape. That was the difference between 92, 93, four or five years of drought. They were skinny. Too many of them, believe it or not, you can have too many deer. And they just, there's just a lot of factors there in 92, 93 that caused them um, all the mortality. But then 07, 08, um, you know, we lost a lot of deer, you know, but I, I still don't think that was a catastrophic winter. And then 10, 11, that was kind of your more classic, you know, started in late October, ran until the middle of March, you know, I have a little weather journal. I had eight inches of hard packed snow in my front yard, like the 10th of March, and we live in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience with, with hard winters. And in a nutshell, if you can go hunt somewhere else, do it. <laughs> But most of us don't have that choice. You know, we right. pretty much got to hunt where we can get a tag or where we live or, you know. Um, and so um, I, I knew it was going to be a hot topic, and I, and I started my hard winter series on it. Um, and just shared everything from as far as, you know, me personally, what I've experienced with it. But I really tried to, to, to sh- share the data that I, have, that I have kind of mined over the years from biologists and researchers and everything, because the problem with our experiences is there are experiences, and there's a lot of emotion tied into them. Hunters are some of the most emotional decision makers that you'll ever meet, you know, because we love our sport. <laughs> we love it, you know. And, and so we go out on the hill, and I had a good biologist tell me this one time, your perception is your reality. I didn't see any deer, so there's no deer. And, and unfortunately, that might be oversimplifying things, but, you know, go to a fishing game meeting and just sit around and listen. Don't say anything. Just listen. You'll hear that a lot. Right? Right. So, so I try to 
kind of look at what does the data say about hard winners? And I think that's, I think the, the article you're referring to is about number three in the series. And I was, I was just sharing that, hey, short of a catastrophic winner where you start to get, you know, 50 to 70% total kill on your herd. By the way, those are pretty rare. Those don't happen very often. Um, that you can still expect to find big bucks and, and, and probably enough of them to make it worth your time after those hard winners. And, you know, I shared some of the data. Of, uh, you actually see um, Colorado and Nevada, excuse me, Idaho and Nevada track mature uh, a percentage of, of mature bucks in the harvest. So it's really easy to see in their stats. All the states do it, but Idaho and Nevada publish it. So it's easy that anybody can look at. Go look at the, the fall after every one of those winners I named. 84, 93, 97, 2008, 2011. Look at, look at that, those fall statistics and compare them to the previous fall before the deer died. You're going to see the percentage of mature bucks in the harvest goes way up. And it's because those hard winners typically take out the, the diseased, the weak, the young, and the very old. Now, there's some guy listening to this podcast saying, dude, you're, you're blowing smoke. The old bucks die during the winter. I know. These seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old bucks, they, 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 do, they do take it in the shorts at a higher rate than, than the rest of them. But most of the guys listening to this podcast are going to be absolutely thrilled to shoot a 170 buck. If you don't believe me, I'll show you my email of, you know, most guys are pretty reasonable and they're pretty happy about, you know, 170, 180 buck. Looking back over all those winners, that's typically the bucks that are left. Um, now they're not easier hunting. I don't want to send that message. It's harder. Um, there's less of them. There's less numbers of deer. It's, remember i said hunters are emotional creatures it's hard to stay pumped you know and climb that extra thousand feet because man i've been out here for three weeks i've hardly seen any deer but the, what i was trying to do with that series is let people know short of catastrophic the bucks we're interested in they're still going to be there this year and the last the last article after you contacted me was it's called exactly where to hunt after hard winters that those following years, not the fall directly after the hard winter. So like this one's going to be what, 2017. That's the fall directly after the winter. There'll still be some bucks killed in your country over there that you're going to go, wow, that's, that, that's amazing. That buck actually made it through. Watch 2018 and 19. The deer hunting will stay tough, but you're going to see some of those bucks that made it through that winter really hit stride because and get big because the reason they made it through the winter is they're genetically better bucks. They're probably heavier in body mass, you know, better fat stores. Dr. Valorous guys makes an argument that some of the, um, some bucks don't rut or they don't rut very heavy. So they'll make it through. And so some of the best bucks I've seen are those two, three years following those really hard winters. And um, you just, it, these hard winters are nothing new. And, you know, back to the emotion part, everything I see on rock slide and, you know, Facebook guys, oh, it's, it's horrible. It's, you know, the end of the end of time. Call a biologist in Wyoming right now. They're so sick of hearing how bad it is. And, and you know, most of the ones I'm talking to, you know, they know me. They know I'm not anti-science. And they're like, 
it's never as bad as people say it is. And, and, and yeah, it's bad, but what are we going to do about it? You know, everyone wants to close the season, shorten the season. You know, I heard down south in your country, they're down to a six-day season right now for, for coming for this fall. And that all sounds touchy-feely, feel good. Oh, great, we're doing something for the deer. But what's managing our deer numbers is, is these winters. That manages the total numbers. But my whole point in the article, uh, back to what you asked, Billy, is that for buck hunters, for what we like to do, if you've got another choice, yeah, go hunt a better better area this year that didn't get a winter kill. But but expect to find still some good bucks in the areas that were hit with winter kill. I've heard one biologist this week drop the word catastrophic for Western Wyoming. I, I, uh, Jeff Short uh, works in that Nugget Canyon area. He, he dropped the word catastrophic. So we might be right on that line right there. But I still remember some bucks coming out of the uh, Grays River in 94 that were huge, and 95 as well. So while, that, while your country might really suffer this fall, um, expect to see some toads coming out of there. I think one thing we were lucky with this year, you know, we usually have snow on the ground here till the 15th of April or 10th, you know, somewhere right in there. And we, it was off almost a month early. So uh, it was a tough winter, and I mean, none of the south faces were open, but it came off really early. Yeah, and that that's only going to help us. Oh, yeah. And, and it was the same here. I mean, I'm, this is what I, if I had a crystal ball, I would say it's going to be spotty, because some deer winter just fine, even in areas like yours, you get 200% of snowpack and everything. Right. Some, some deer winter just fine with what you just said. It, it, it did end early. Sometimes that's too little, too late. You know, the deer are just still in, in really bad condition. That's why the fawn losses are so high. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm with you. That's that. That's one in our favor. Plus, the deer went into winter in pretty good shape. There was a, a mule deer and elk symposium over here in Sun Valley last week, just a collection of biologists and researchers and everything from around the West. The common theme that came out of that was that mule deer numbers were peaking last year and, and – there's guys that are like, what do you mean peaking? We don't have number of the deer that we used to have. No, no. The reason we don't have the number of deer we used to have is because we don't have the amount of habitat we used to have. Right. But, but for the amount of the carrying capacity of the ranges was kind of getting towards its peak. Mm-hmm. So that's a good time to get a hard winter. 92, 93, those numbers had peaked in like 90, 91. We had too many deer. You, had, you get two deer tags um, uh, a buck and doe right here at, at just the over-the-counter price that year. And so there was a lot of damage done to the winter ranges that year. Right. Where this year, you know, you guys had 40,000 deer come out of those units um, uh, last year. Um, you know, 40 bucks per hundred does. I mean, it, it was peaking. Oh, yeah. So, but but they were still in good shape. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going on too long here like I always do. But I, I'm with you, Brad. There, there's some things that are that, that are in our favor right here, too. Mm-hmm. You know, they've always set the population objective for the Wyoming range at 50,000, it seems like. You know, that's what you've seen for years and years. When I, I had a conversation with the, our new local game warden here, and he said, you know, we were starting to see the reproduction rates drop a little bit. He's like, we thought we had about 38,000 deer. And he says, I, you know, after we were talking with the biologist, he says, I think we were overestimating our carrying capacity in the Wyoming range. And he says, probably more like 40,000. So we were about there, you know. Yeah, we're getting real close to it. And then we know if it's supposed to be 50,000, we were only 40. The naysayers will say, see, we didn't get it. But right. all I can say is in the Intermountain West, the, the hard winter units, it, it's winter that manages our deer. It oh, yeah. really is. So if we lose a lot of deer in a winter like that, 
the sky's not falling. That, I mean, I, I kind of gave up on that because there'll be a lot of hunters this year. They're going to go out and they're going to hunt. They're going to say, I didn't see the deer. The deer sucks. You know, the game and fish sucks. Let's hang them. You know, I, I've been through that so many times. It's almost like a cliche. <laughs> And yet it's not really us that are driving those deer numbers. We drive right. buck numbers. Don't get me wrong. We, we, we drive buck numbers, no doubt. But, the, you know, the total deer numbers, and that's what most hunters are gauging the success of their hunt on. You know, how many deer did I see? You know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and the other good thing about when this happens, you guys, and, you know, maybe things have changed because information travels so fast. And, you know, we're telling people what to do right now. Um, you'll see a lot of guys give up early on a year like this. The woods get real quiet on hard winters and you can use that to your advantage as a buck hunter if you can just get it through your head that the bucks are the bucks i'm interested are probably still here mm-hmm. yeah that's great advice yeah we really and that's why i wanted to get you on and talk about that robbie is just for that because i mean i've heard that all over everywhere you know just the emotional mentality of so many hunters out there right now and uh i just really appreciate your perspective on that yeah yeah you bet Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, we have to talk about your book. <laughs> Why don't you give us a little background, just a brief overview of that, and then Brad and I have put together some questions that we want to specifically talk to you about. So, All right, sounds good, man. Um, on my book, um, that was kind of a lifelong dream that started in my early 20s. Um, uh, uh, Kurt Darner was, was kind of the big buck hunter of the day back then, and um, uh, he's had some problems. Um just ethic problems, a few things like that. Got 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 in a, a pinch a few times, like unfortunately too many big deer hunters do. But his book was just a life changer for me. It came out in 84 and, you know, I, I read it just a few years after that. And it was just neat to finally see somebody that could kill big bucks on purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and he did, even with the problems that he had, you know, the guy's not a poacher, um, uh, uh, you know, his problems were related to elk and outfitting, but, um, and he, he just kind of lit my fire and a whole generation of hunters, you know, I'm older than you guys. So I, you know, David Long, my friend, I've heard him talk about it before too. I mean, many of the hunters that are, that, that, that are honest, cause a lot of them are like, Oh, I don't want to mention Kurt Garner. He got in trouble, but it's like, yeah, he did, but you still go read his book. Now you'll walk away with stuff that you just didn't even think about. And, you know, it's, it, it, it just, it just lit my fire. So, I applied what he what he uh, had in the book, and I, it just worked. It started working, and I just it gave me a desire to want to pass that on at some point in some way. Um, not necessarily a book, but I started writing articles in my early twenties. You know, everything was magazines and newspapers back then, and so um, I was writing articles for that just on my experiences with deer hunting, and I, I could see that. I was having the same effect on guys as well. You know, maybe guys that were younger than me that were trying to learn about deer hunting. You know, I'd get a call about an article and it was just fun. I just thought, wow, this is, this is just kind of passing on wisdom and knowledge just like I benefited. And not just Kurt Garner, you know, Dwight Shue, Walt Prothero. Um, there, there, there was a bunch of other books I read at that time. Um, and I just figured out you can learn stuff from books. And so in my early 20s, I switched my major from engineering to English. My dad was ready to kill me, but um, I just knew that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And, and uh, uh, fast forward 20 years, that's what I'm doing now. I'm the editor at Rockslide, and you know that's my, my job is working with the English language. And out of that, I, I, I wrote my book, and I, I've been 
only took me four months to write that book, but my, my editor that helped me with the book said, no, really, it took you 25 years because you had been writing that, that entire time as I did articles, you know, started my blog in 2013. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that, the book came out of that right there. And, you know, it's, um, I, I hear from guys every week that are just, you know, excited about what they've learned in it, um, not only experienced hunters, but also brand new hunters, too. And as we all know, we whether we want to admit it or not, we have a hunter number problem. We don't have enough new ones coming in. So exciting to hear, you know, guys that are reading it, they're like, Hey, maybe I'll never kill a big buck. Um, they're not even interested in that, but there's a lot of uh, uh, tips and tactics in the book that can help anybody, anybody that's even just trying to fill their freezer. And I think big bucks are the hardest one in the herd to kill. So if you can learn to kill them, everything below that is just going to be more uh, easily to access. One thing, you know, I've read your book uh, started uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, but I just, one thing that really has stuck out to me, you know, I, I read most everything out there just because I've got the bug, the, the big buck bug. <laughs> but uh, one thing that I really liked about your perspective is becoming a more well-rounded hunter. There's a lot of times you read the books and people just say, sit on the highest knob you can and glass, glass, glass. But one thing that I really liked about your book was it actually went in not only the glassing techniques but other techniques as well that can be just as successful if not more so than a lot of the I guess futuristic type um, techniques that we're using now. I mean you talk about tracking, you talk about still hunting, you talk about ambush hunting and I think personally you know that has kind of helped me to go back to the drawing board and say you know what if I really want to be you know, and be successful with as a big buck hunter. A lot of times, what you have to do, you, you don't even you have to have a lot of tools in the toolbox in a sense, and then be able to because there's certain situations where glassing doesn't isn't going to work, and so you need to not only master that but master the whole aspect to truly be able to to kill big mule deer. So I really appreciated that and wanted to let you know. <laughs> Yay, man! You bet. And, and that was the thing that. Um... You know, and I, I am not an expert. I, I don't like that word. Um, I've just hunted mule deer a lot. And so I just tried to share in my book that this is what has worked for me. And there was a lot of years I wasn't very successful. So I kind of have a case study. Okay, this wasn't working and this is working. And you brought it up and it's, it'll kind of sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. Glassing is a mule deer hunter's top technique in most of the West. That's your top technique. That's your number one technique. That's what you're going to find yourself doing the most. But if you only ever glass and you're only sitting on the knob, you're not going to kill very many. And if you can, you know, that big, long, probably boring story I gave you at the intro of the podcast, that, that was classic on how it happens. It started with glassing. I had to find him, but I couldn't shoot him at three miles. Okay. Mm-hmm. And even the day I found him at 800 yards, I don't know a long-range hunter that could have got on him at that distance because he was moving. And just because of the country, hard to see. You see him for a second, you get ready. I mean, you know, those, those shots take time. Right. So what killed that buck? Ambush hunting killed that buck. Even though I had to glass him and I had to get in there, it was sitting on my butt for four and a half days that got him killed. In the old days, the old Robbie Denning of like 27 years old, I would have saw that buck, I'm going to kill that buck, and I would have went in there, and I would have sat down for a couple hours, 
and I'd have got bored, and I'd have moved over there 300 yards, and I'd have got bored, and I'd have moved over there 300 yards, and I'd have got bored. He would have heard all that, and he would have left. And so thanks for pointing that out, Billy, and, and that's what I mean by kind of talking out both sides of my mouth is glassing's awesome. You got to do it. You got to master it. But if you stop at glassing, a lot of big bucks are going to get away. Well, I want to pick your brain for a minute. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> so uh, just some things that Brad and I have talked about. Um, we want to know from you um, how best to allocate your time. Um, you know, we find ourselves out there for three to five days, you know, in the high country, of course. Um, so if you just give us some tips for like the three to five day hunts and how to best allocate your time during that time. And then also, you know, the seven to 10 day hunts as well. Yeah, you bet, dude. Um, and I'll, I'll sum it up in a nutshell. Focus. And I write about it a lot in the book. I gave up a lot to be a big buck hunter. And I mean, a lot of other recreational pursuits, a lot of professional pursuits, um, a lot I gave up to be able to do it. And this applies right down to your three-day hunt as well, okay? If I only had three or four days to hunt, I am setting myself up for failure right away. Now, I, I realize you're just talking about one hunt. Maybe you do multiple of those through the fall. But you need to be spending that three or four days where a big buck lives, period. Just like my story at the beginning. I focused it down to right where that buck lived. My partner, Ryan Avery, him and his wife were out hunting that whole time. They were seeing bucks every day. It was really tempting to go where they went, but I needed to be where the target buck was I was hunting. The only way to do that, besides gamble, and just pick a basin and go, which works sometimes, is you got to scout. You got to be out there well before the season, and you have got to do your best to attempt to find target bucks that you can focus on. Um, I've lived, you know, 40 miles from you guys. I'm very well aware of that high country. Those bucks are going to gather up in that country in July and August. They're going to be there till the hunters bugger them up. Um, the, a lot of those bucks will stay there clear into the season. You'll see them every day. You know, the one forties, one fifties, one sixties, even the one seventies, but your four five, six year old bucks, they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to leave the wide open basins, but I don't think they leave the mountain. There may be some that do here and there, but it doesn't matter if they leave or not. You're not going to find them by switching mountain ranges, switching units. I did all that stuff. You're just starting over when you do that. So when you find a buck and it could even be a buck you saw last year that, you know, made it through whatever, man, you have got the best Intel on the planet right there. A big buck lives here. So on that three to five day hunt or even seven to 10 day hunt, focus, focus, figure, remember everything we know about mule deer in, in, in specific time frames. they're not running around like lost children. I realize the rut can change that. The migration can change that. You guys get a big migration over there in early October. I get all that. I understand that. But what I'm saying is if you know a big buck is living there and the conditions have not changed, um, and, and hunting pressure is a condition the, the, to, to, to make that buck move three, four miles away where you can never find him again. You never can. I gave up on a 200 incher last year because I knew he moved. He left the mountain because of snow. You've you got to stay there. And that is so hard to do when you're not seeing much. I mentioned hunting pressure. 
I'm a, I kill bucks under fairly heavy hunting. I don't hunt anywhere where the hunting pressure is horrible because there's no big bucks. But, you know, I don't really hunt anywhere where there's no hunting pressure either. either. So if, if I'm hunting, you know, high country and I'm not seeing a buck I saw out there in September or August or July or whatever, I just know he's going to be right here somewhere on these finger ridges. David Long talks about that a lot in his book about those lower finger ridges. If you're an inexperienced deer hunter, you read that, you think, oh, great, I'll just go hunt the lower finger ridges. Then you go up there and you realize, oh, my gosh, those are hard to hunt. That's where you're still hunting, your ambush hunting, your tracking, all that stuff comes in. Long answer to your question, but it's focus. You've got to focus where you think they are. If you don't have that kind of intel, if you're like, well, I didn't really, I don't really know where a big buck is. Okay, that's fine. Go. It's fun. Sometimes you get lucky, but don't come home all broken hearted that man i was up there four days and i didn't find a deer of course not there's hunting pressure now there's people around they're not very visible the young ones are visible and it's enough to make you think well all the deer are here he's not no he's just hiding right there somewhere the buck you're looking for is hiding he has to be or he wouldn't be five years old um and so focus focus on on, on that area i still make the mistake even now i think sometimes i can give up on an area too soon your seven to 10 day hunts, you're just going to have more time. Um, you can kind of wear an area out. I get that. But I think about seven to 10 days, that's about my limit, by the way, you know, for one hunt. Um, that's a good amount of time to find a buck, especially a pre-scouted buck. But you're doing the same things. You're just focusing on that area. Maybe you can expand out a little bit. I think it's on your sheet somewhere or something I read on, um, on altitude on the Facebook. Yeah, that's what it was. The, the core area of a buck, how big is it? I just use a square mile as, um, as a reference. All right. It could be a little bigger, could be a little smaller, but I'm not far off. And I can prove that by dozens of big bucks I found over the years. Now, as other conditions I was talking about, if, 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 you know, your migration starts, obviously he's not going to be within that square mile. He's going to leave it. But I think on any given day, you stand within a square mile, okay? The rut, they'll move a lot in the rut, but I typically find big bucks in the rut will hang up for a few days within a square mile. So if I see them, and then we didn't get a foot of snow the night, that night, and then a foot of snow the next day, I'm going to keep looking for him right there. Because, you know, unless it's just really low deer dens densities, you know, he's probably just checking the does, all that kind of stuff. Hunting pressure, that's one, one place that makes it tough in the Wyoming range because those bucks will leave that really wide open country and they, they may get outside of that square mile. You guys remember Popeye, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Remember him? Of course. Okay. And, those, those guys were, and I'm not arguing with those guys at all, but they were convinced that he left that area. He had a secondary area, um, you know, miles away. I don't know what mountain he lived on, but to me, that sounds weird that he would have to move miles away before the migration started to evade hunters. I, I could be wrong, but think about that buck that's on the cover of David Long's book. Have you ever talked to him about that buck? A little he bit. killed it in the timber at like 150 right. yards. Yeah. All right. So and that buck was just as old and just as smart as Popeye. I mean, you know, once they get five, six years old, they're smart. It don't matter if they're 200. <laughs> 180 or 250 they are right. smart buggers all right and um the david spotted that buck in the morning kind of a little bit in the open but then it got into the cover david went in there and killed him <clears throat> most hunters 
would think, well, I saw him. I've been out here for seven more days. I haven't seen him. He's moved into that mountain range over there. Right. Once I got away from that thinking, bless my daddy's heart, but that's how he thought. Because, you know, things were different back then. We did hunt a lot during the migration. Once I got that out of my mind and I just realized the deer are probably right here where I've seen them. That's where most of my big bucks came from. And I gave you an example in that story in the mm-hmm. beginning right there. Mm-hmm. All right. Another long answer. You sound pretty long winded, but, <laughs> but you know, that, that, that's what I do is I focus. That's the best answer I can give you. If you're in country where you know where there's a big buck focus, if you don't know there's a big buck there, you still kind of got to do the same things, but no matter what you do, you can do all the right things. If there's not a big buck there, you're not going to kill it and you got to move. Right. <laughs> so just speaking of that, a lot of times in my own experience, I have found those big bucks pre preseason scouting. Um, you know, you see them a little bit, you know, before they go that, that velvet type transition and then go hard horn. You know, our rifle season is about September 15th over here. Yeah. So there is that transition and the behavioral changes that, that happen that the, the big bucks do move down. You know, I've had a hard time, you know, relocating those bucks once I've seen them. Well, you just talk about, you know, some tips. Are you looking in the trees? Are you spending more time looking, you know, glassing the trees? What are you doing to relocate those bucks? Well, um, I don't think the date of September 15th has anything to do with it other than a whole bunch of hunters show up. The reason why I've hunted within 40 miles of you guys for most of my life in very similar country, especially south of there. And, um, we only have an archery season during those times. We don't have those early high country hunts like you do. And just last year and the year before, I was chasing the same bucks later in September in the same places that I found them in July and August. The difference is there's not an onslaught of hunters up there buggering it up and pushing them into the trees. And then you know, I've hunted your country too, a lot in Region H. And you're right, around September 15th, all those hunters show up. Those five, six, seven-year-old bucks, they bail off of those big open basins. And they go down in, there's still habitat there. If you drop over those mountains, I'm not talking the thick dog hair stuff that you can't even walk through. I'm talking about trees you can't glass. But you get in the trees, and it's like, hey, there's a lot of feed in here. The sun gets to the ground. You know, there's grass, there's brush, stuff like that. Um, That's where those bucks have gone. And that's where, what we talked about a few minutes ago, glassing kind of goes out the window um, because you can't really glass trees. You got to get in there and get in their living room and kill them. Now, that sounds easy. I mean, I just told you the secret. That's where they're at. Just going in there and kill them. Well, you both know. Oh, my gosh. Those places are 40-degree slopes. They are hard to traverse and be quiet in. You know, we're so used to visually seeing deer that it's hard to go in there and still hunt for two and a half hours and not see the deer. It's hard. But look down. See those turds? See that track? See that rub? They're there. They're, they're giving you clues. And so, you know, a minute ago, what you and I were, you were talking about with my book, I tried to kind of well-round it a little bit more. That's what I'm talking about right there. You can sit on that knob all day unless all the hunting pressure disappears buck is not going to come back out so billy the reason you're having a hard time locating those bucks and this is just an educated guess because they're not inhabiting the open country anymore but if there was no hunting pressure 
you're not still not going to see them as much because something's happening to those deer when they're losing their when they're going hard horn. You know, Chuck Adams wrote an article on this back in the 80s. I remember it. they had a mountain in California that nobody hunted, but he noticed it was a lot harder to find deer up there in, in, in October than it was in August. When I say nobody hunted, like they didn't hunt it until like later October. And he said it just got harder to find the deer. They just, you know, things are changing. They're, they're spending more time in the cover. So that's what I would offer, Billy, that they're still there. They're, they, they don't just pick up and head out of the country. They go to the next available secure habitat. And in my experience, that's usually closer than what we think. You read my book, the opening story in that book, that 234 buck. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. I, okay. I found him late July in 95. I was going to hunt him. He was in the 190s then. I found a better buck, a 35 inch typical. Gave up on that buck, went after the other buck, never got him either like it always is. 96, I went back, August 6th, just the one night camping trip, sat down, glassed the ridge for the evening, morning, sun come up, got out of the sleeping bag, set the spotter up, glassed the ridge, there he was, 100 yards from where he was the year before, 190 to 230. Uh, that was August 7th, and I hunted him a, a big chunk of archery season, which is August 30th, a lot of sheep in that country, and you know, tons of activity general over-the-counter rifle elk season you think deer season's crazy come around here for our seven-day elk season i mean like oh my gosh lots of guys in there you know it was it was five miles back in the back country but you know there's an outfitter camp there tons of activity killed him on the 20th of october about 400 yards from where i'd seen him both those previous august and july look in the pictures of, of when i killed him look all around him what's he in heavy cover mm -hmm. Right. So, so when I say it's an educated guess, it's an educated guess on what I've seen happen dozens and dozens and dozens of times that those deer are still there somewhere. They've just got into the cover where they're harder to, to get. Now, I realize there's guys right now say, hey, I can show you a deer that I found on the summer range August 10th. And I got a picture of him October 7th, four miles away. I get it. I get it. I just I don't think that's the average, though. Right. And what good does that information do you? You just end up giving up on your area. And starting over in a new area, because that's what we do, right? We leave the mountain and we go to another one. We go to our next honey hole. Well, our next honey hole got hunted too. Those bucks are probably doing the same things. These are all averages. These are all just experiences I've had. I realize you can walk back into your honey hole September 18th. There's the big buck standing up on the ridge. You kill him. You know, he, he, he was there the whole time. You just got lucky and he got out there. But if you base your whole hunting career on trying to repeat that, it, well, he was here, so I'm just going to keep hunting hunting right here, even though there's guys all over that ridge. You're, you just got lucky. You just got lucky. He's he's moved, but he hasn't moved as far as, as you might think. Mm -hmm. Oh, the one other thing I wanted to talk to you about was lab aging your, your deer. Because I know you, you do collect some yeah. from other people and send them in and, and run just a little side business off that. But let's talk yeah. about the value of that and sort of your perspective having done that for – I mean, up, upwards of a decade, I'm sure, probably, right? Yeah, no, actually, dude, I did my first one in 96, that buck that we uh -huh. talked about, that 234 buck. I met a biologist, and he was so interested in the buck, he um, uh, had me send him a tooth, and he got it aged for me. And I just thought, man, 
I, I, I want to know this about all my bucks. And I killed a couple of nice bucks before then, nothing really big. And I just wanted to know that information. It's kind of like one more piece in the puzzle. You know, we're, we're voyeurs and you know, by nature as mule deer, we want to know everything about them, watch them, you know, all that stuff. And so that was just kind of one more piece of the pie. And, um, so in the early two thousands, um, uh, uh, Matson's lab can age them for anybody, but it's pretty expensive unless you send in a, a sample size. Well, I was an outfitter, you know, I, I've been on the, on the, I, I had my first website in 2000 so you know i've been on the web since it got real busy and i just collected a lot of hunters that were interested in that stuff so i had guys start sending me their jawbones and i was able to collect enough sample sizes that you know even back when i was making you know like 10 bucks an hour i could still afford to get my my, my, my teeth sampled mm-hmm. and um uh um so I, I i started doing that with all my big bucks i've lab aged every single one of my big bucks except for one and the neighbor's dog uh, got a hold of the jawbone and, and uh, ate it <sighs> and what it taught me brad is that and some people will say, well, this is basic, of course, but all the big bucks are four years old and older. Mm-hmm. And because I have their teeth and I can go back in my brain and remember what was that buck doing? Where did he live? When did I kill him? How did I kill him? All that stuff I just told you in those stories about, I don't think the deer really leave once they get to that age. They're not nomads. It's kind of tied to that aging thing that, because as, as I think about it, it's like, man, all the all the bucks I've killed that are in that four to the oldest buck I've killed is nine. Um, my average is about six, six and a half. Um, they're, they all live pretty much the same. They, they have their areas. They stay within, they move very, very slow. Um, they're not, they're not nomads. They're very calculated like that buck last year at the beginning of our story. You know, I did get him killed obviously, but it was still luck. He knew I was there and he acted, he, he was six and a half, by the way, I just got his, um, I could just got his tooth or his uh, lab age report here a couple weeks ago. He was six and a half. He acted just like every other six and a half buck, six and a half year old buck I've ever hunted. He stayed in a small area. He stayed in the cover as much as he could. If we wouldn't have had the rut, I don't think I would have killed that buck. Right. I, I think he could not stand to stay in those trees until dark because there was right. does out of Right. Remember I said that he was sniffing the ground. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and you know, so again, all that aging Brad is, is just confirming to me that big bucks, four five, six, seven years old act completely different than the rest of the herd. And my buck in my book, this is my own, own uh, way to classify. I think they're a subset of the species mm-hmm. just in how they act, where they live, what they do. They're, they're totally different than the rest of the deer. That's what a lab aging has, has taught me. Right. And I highly recommend it for anybody. So if a guy wants to do that through you, what's about the, just send it over to you. Do you have a website that can tell us where to do that and information on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my outfitting website is called we scout for you.com. That's we scout the number four, the letter u.com. Mm-hmm. And you'll see there's a page on there, you know, how old is my buck? And that explains everything. It's a uh, $30. If you're just sending one sample, I can make better deals on that. If I'm getting multiple samples for guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I need to have your, uh, the, the cycle that we participated in, I have to have the sample there by January 15th. So that gives guys plenty of time after hunting season. Oh, yeah. And, um, then I always have the results back by late March and, um, it's, it's fun. It really is, man. I await that report coming back on those bucks as much as I weighed any, you know, draw tag or anything. It's just fun to, you know, kind of find out. And this is the other thing I've learned. You know, I, I know a lot of taxidermists, obviously, through the years. They're always spouting off how old your deer are. Right. And they look at they look at the, the molars. Right. All the hunters I've talked to, they all know how old the deer are. I used to think that, too. We don't have a friggin' clue. <laughs> when you hear a guy say, that buck is five years old, 
It's not a three-year-old. He's probably right. My my buck that I killed was nine. I guessed him at five. Right. I mean, there there's just such a just like you know I'm five foot nine. You know, my friend's six foot one, and my other friend's obese. I mean, we're all different. Right. We're all different, and that's what that's why it's a little hard to do. I think you can get it within a couple of years. Oh, yeah. But it's just really neat to know. And, and that article series that you asked me about, Billy, if, if you look at, I think it was the second to the last uh, article in or the last one, it was a four part series. I, I, because I know their age too, I can backdate and figure out when they were born. Most deer are born between the first and the 10th of June. I know what year they're born. I know what the weather conditions were. And so I put that in that article that some of those best bucks I've killed have been bucks that have lived through the hardest winters. And I couldn't find the picture. I mentioned one in there in 93 when the deer hunting was the worst it's ever been in my whole life. Doug Ayers, an old buck hunter from around here. Um, uh, he was actually from California, but he would come up here every year and, 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 and hunt. He killed a magnum buck. Um, in, in 93, we couldn't age it obviously, but it was just neat to see that there, there's another, and that buck, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old. That's all I can say had lived through that winter. Um, this buck that I just killed last year, the, the, um, the one we just told the story about at the beginning, he was born in 2010. Mm-hmm. That fawn cop, that fawn crop was almost wiped out. Right. Just like yours is right now. We were right. in the 80, 90, hundred percent range mm-hmm. on our radio collared deer. Yeah, here he is, six years later, running around. He's one of the heaviest bucks I've ever killed. Right. And and in that unit, just so you know, I mean, he sticks out like a sore thumb. I've never seen a buck that heavy. There was obviously something special about that buck. So that's what aging does, is it allows you to just one more piece of information. Where were they born? What kind of weather did they come up in? All that stuff. And plus, it's fun to uh, rub it in your taxidermist's face when he's like, oh, that's a nine-year-old buck. You come back, hey, dude, he was only five. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I, you know, it's the furthest I've ever gone. When I read your book, I thought, I'm going to start doing that, and I've saved my jaw bones. I haven't sent them in yet. I'll have to send them to you for this next cycle or something. But uh, Excellent. Dude, yeah, you can get them to me now. Now that my business has grown a lot, I've actually – once I once I get six samples, I can send them off, and okay. that keeps you in that $30 range. Uh-huh. And um, I've already got two so far, so I'm, I'm ready if you get me some. Even though I participate in the January cycle, if I get six samples early – I think there's a cycle where we can get our um, results back in like September or something. Oh, nice. You know, there's a, there's a couple of years. It's just usually I don't have enough to send them in then. So, so yeah, yeah. Get them to me. And um, it, it, this is what I tell everybody. Don't get one aged if you don't plan on doing the rest of them, because you, right. you will want to know as oh, soon yeah. as you kill another one, you'll want to know. Most of the guys that I have are just continued customers from year after year after year. They keep sending them to uh-huh. me. Well, I'm sure it's addicting. I mean, you, you kind of have to be a little bit, more into it i think than the average guy to want to do that but it's a yeah, it's cool exactly. to learn a little bit more and, and know for sure rather than just yeah like you like you said the taxidermist or even the biologist looking at the molars and saying well i think he's four years old you know and and most biologists are really good about that they'll tell you i think that the taxidermist will say i know um, <laughs> right. at least the ones i've been around but the biologists you know they'll give themselves some wiggle room too because they, they've been around it or not and the cool thing about it too um i i aged a guy's buck last year that was 180 and i mean this buck had the kind of frame that was going to go 200 probably if he you know, lived a couple more years deep forks you know he's only about 26 inches wide mm-hmm. four years old great condition you know, he was the kind of buck that you wanted to see, see see make it. So lab aging will tell you a lot of stuff. It really will. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So, Robbie, in conclusion, we do have some questions from the listeners um, on right. our Altitude Invasion page. Um, and I think we've answered, I, I wrote down three of them that I wanted to get to. Two of them I think that we've got to. Um, Adrian Vigil, um, uh, they said how to find mature bucks in new areas. I think we've kind of covered that, and also that's covered in your book. So, um, Also, Ben Gorman said uh, he wanted to know about changes and pattern ability of bucks between summer mode and the rut and i think we got that one as well um let the, me hit that let me hit perfect. that one real quick again let me let me just um because I, I and just so you know even before you guys um uh, invited me to the podcast i've always checked your facebook page i love it you know i see lots of good <laughs> stuff on there and um uh um so i saw a question on there either for this series or before and and it was something about you know like the, the that question there the pattern ability and the best time to hunt bucks um they're most patternable in kind of that August to the end of September, unless there's a big influx of hunters that come in, which we talked about a minute ago. You're right. All right. But that August time frame to middle of September is probably the best time of the year to continue to relocate a buck day after day after day after day. Now there's not a lot of seasons open then, but if you look at Idaho, we have some August 15th seasons rifled. You got to draw them, but I just want guys to know that's a primo time. Um, then from the end of September on, it's opening day. <laughs> That's your primo time, you know. Right. After that, if there's any hunting pressure, it just gets real tough. You just got to, you know, pull up your boots and get out there and keep after it. But then it starts to get a lot better again about early November, but it really depends on the unit. I mean, I know the way I understand your mule deer herd over there, I know you don't have an early November seasons, but they're in migration at that point, and they can be really hard to locate. So, boy, you it's a good time to find big bucks because they're visible. They're coming out of the cover, but they literally might be a, you know, a couple miles away the next day. Right. But once you get into the hardcore rut, which I think is like the 10th to the 20th, right around in there, that that's another primo time when you can really, sometimes I use the word pattern a mule deer real loosely, use that phrase loosely. Cause I don't know, of course, they're quite patternable, but there's a lot, a lot of things in your favor at that kind of late August, early September, mid November. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd tell that guy. Perfect. Also, the one that I was kind of, the question that I was kind of interested in hearing your answer. Um, this is from Jordan and Bud. Um, and they say, when you find, when you find a buck that you're on your, that's on your hit list, how often are you checking in on him, uh, preseason scouting? And, uh, do you target other bucks and have multiple options or what, what is your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I was working on an article last year that I never got done called the problem with a hit list. Hit lists are great. It is so like nice by the end of uh, August, early September, to have like four or five big bucks scattered out. Isn't that fun? You guys have done that, haven't oh, yeah. you? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. This is what I find the problem with that is. I don't focus. We talked about mm-hmm. that earlier in the podcast. I obviously go after the biggest one first. And oh man, there's some guy over there on the ridge. Oh, somebody just shot a deer right there where he was. You know, your your nerves are on edge. You know, every time there's a shot, you know, you're looking around and somebody gets something. You know, I've hiked a thousand foot off of a mountain to go down to talk to a guy that shot a deer just to make sure it wasn't one I was after. What ends up happening? I'm losing focus. I'm starting to think, oh, he's gone. He's moved to that mountain range over there or that one. So then I move to my number two buck, right? Mm-hmm. And, and 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 then I repeat the whole cycle again well he's probably gone else somebody little farmer up the road here said somebody took a 30 incher out of that canyon opening day well that was probably him 
even though I don't know that. So I quit. And then I go to the next one. You see my point? You end up not focusing. I love to have a hit list. I have one every year, but I've learned don't give up on that number one buck until you are absolutely sure he's gone. And that's, we talked about emotion. Emotion can be our enemy. You got to get the emotion out of the equation. It can't be that I feel like he's gone. You have to know he's gone. Go to my blog, look at my hunt last fall. You'll see I finally gave up on that 200-incher when that country got hit with 80, 18 inches of snow. Remember all the snow we got in mid-October? That was during our general deer season. Mm-hmm. I had to be down here guiding elk hunters like it always is, and I missed that snowstorm. That buck left. I could prove it. I could, I could cover that mountain. It took me two days. There was that much snow. There wasn't a track in there. The deer had left. So then – I slept well that night. I'm moving on to the next one, which is, and by the way, the one I ended up killing. Right. Um, and so, 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 uh, you know, notice how long my answers are. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, your, your hit list can work against you if you're too quick to jump to the next buck. Be really careful with it. I'm all for hit lists, but the older I get, the more I'm like, I just need one, the right. best one. And because I'm scouting in areas where where there's older bucks, there must be some reason they're getting older there. There's probably some way that they're escaping or whatever, or just a draw tag. You know what I mean by that? That can be great. Um, you got, you got to focus. You got to focus, Jordan. One of the things I found in my experience, you know, cause I've done that and had five or whatever, three or five bucks on my hit list. And uh, you're at a big dif- disadvantage as soon as you, as soon as you let the hunting season start and not being on like number two or number three, Cause you don't know what's gone on in there, you know? Yeah, but. exactly. The best thing to do with your hit list is, is have a couple of buddies that you really like and they help you out. <laughs> right. You go hunt that buck. I'm going to hunt right. this one. That, Cause you're right, Brad, that, then, you know, and, and you know, I, I want to make sure people don't think that I, I never go check on other bucks. I do, I, but I try to do all that during the scouting season, you mm. know, cause you just said it, Brad, once hunting season opens every, gosh, every minute that goes by after sunrise, your odds are going down. Right. on any of the bucks on your hit list, hmm. right? Yeah, one other thing too, I've hunted smaller bucks on my hit list just because I thought they were more killable than bigger bucks. You've probably got some places in the Wyoming range, you know there's a big buck every year, but there's a flipping wall tent there three days before the season. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Is there any? Is there anywhere like that in the Wyoming I, range? I haven't seen anywhere. Oh, no, no not at all. <laughs> Never. That's, that's exactly what we did last year, though. Exactly. Billy had gone scouting somewhere else, and I went and scouted. and Well, we went together, but he didn't see the buck. And the one he'd found was bigger, but there was four guys. You know, this was in August, and they were scouting him too. And they were watching him when I was in there. So, and then and in the basin I, that I found I the buck, leave the, those bucks. Yeah, the, in the basin that I found the buck, I wanted to kill. When I went back to check on him, I found another you know high one eighties buck, and I said, "Hey, there's two shooter bucks in here. I know they're not as big as the one you found, but I think our odds of getting them are way better." And we ended up we ended up killing the one. So. Yeah. I, I think, Excellent. you know, and come to find out as the season close, we've got a good, uh, actually a, a staffer here that was hunting that other buck. He'd been hunting him for a few years and learning, you know, learning some more information. I think we definitely made the right, the right choice on that. Because so. he didn't get him either, right? No, I don't think anybody did. I, he disappeared during the archery hunt. I think somebody buggered him out and nobody gotcha. saw him. And that's, and that's what I'm saying on hit lists. You know, that was part of that article theme I was I was thinking about. You gotta still use your brain. And you knew right there that hey, th- there's gonna be a lot of people hunting this buck. I, I just try not to even chase those bucks, you know. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah. 
just a frustration, you know. <laughs> and yeah, another it's not thing, what it's all about another thing. Yeah, we we saw that other buck, and he was a great deer, and we hunted him. Um, was in there hunt, hunting him. We saw him one time during the archery season, and then of course, as big bucks do, they disappear, and we couldn't relocate him again. But we did find another shooter buck that just showed up um, as we were, you know, hunting and different things, you know, and and it was an awesome deer. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing, you guys, is if you've heard me say that a couple times, if I'm scouting areas where there's mature bucks, they're they're there for a reason. I've read that in mule deer books all the way back to the 1950s, that these deer, um, these big bucks, they know what it takes to survive, and they're attracted to certain country, whether it's the cover. You know, I, I think they're a little more adaptable on feed than what, what we would think, because there can be great feed, and they won't go to it if they're vulnerable. Um, but, but yeah, just, just the fact that you were in an area where there was a mature buck, of course another one showed up. And that's, again, that gets back to focus, doesn't it? Oh, Aren't yeah. you glad you were focusing on it? Because, hey, where'd that buck come from? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think these these winters, like like this year, will be a good opportunity to learn some of the best habitat in, in the areas that you hunt, too. Yeah. I found when densities go down a little bit, you can really key in on sort of the, the areas that hold the deer the most because they're not going to be spread out all over the place anymore. They're concentrated in. And those areas are ones that are going to produce every year, it seems like, you know. You got it, Brad, and you and and there's data to support that. That's that last post in that series I did. That that when the deer herd shrinks, the the remaining deer seek out the best available habitat, and I think that's also one reason I see some of the best antlers hmm. after these hard winters. We talked about the 2010-11 winter. Remember that was pretty hard on you guys yeah. over there in yeah, 11, yeah. and every, you know if they left the seasons alone. Everybody lobbied the fishing game. They shortened the seasons just like they did in 92, 93. The problem with shortening the season, it never comes back. It never gets lengthened again. Right. And look at the bucks that were killed in 2012. Um, at, at least not, you know, I draw a 100-mile circle around you guys. I'm hunting the other side of the border. We killed some good bucks that year. It was amazing how – and everybody's like, wow, they bounced back really fast. Well, it wasn't anything to do with the season because the season never got changed till 12. Right. But it gets down to what you were just saying, you know, seeking out that best habitat. That's different every place around here. It's kind of the quakey aspen zone that's the best habitat. So, Robbie, we don't mean to take up any more of your time, but we sure appreciate that having you on. And, you know, I always – I've looked forward to this for a long time, and we'll probably have to have you on again because you're just – it's great to talk to somebody that's really done it and, you know, been through a little bit of the struggles that we do as big buck hunters and kind of has some insight for us. So we really appreciate having you on. Oh, as as you've seen, guys, just like I said on your Facebook the other night, I love to talk about buck hunting. I'm, I'm a blabbermouth. I just go on. I, I can do it. I can do an all day podcast, unfortunately. So so yeah, let's have me on again. And what we should probably do is um, one thing we didn't get to talk about. We talk about all the bucks we killed. I learn a lot from those, but all the ones I didn't kill. Oh yeah. There's a lot to learn from those, and some of the you know some of the best bucks I've ever seen have just gotten away. And, and I, we could talk about that, you know, each buck, what I did, what I didn't do right. That's why I'm, I'm pretty fanatic about focusing and everything. Cause all the ones that got away, I didn't focus on them enough. That was a problem. <laughs> right. Gotcha. Right. So what's the, if people want to pick up your book, where's the best place to do that on rock slide or on Amazon or what do you, where do you usually push people? 
if they want a, a signed copy from the author, a lot of guys do, um, uh, just go to Rockslide and it's in our store. So rockslide.com, that's our homepage. That's where our, all our articles are. You'll see a link to the store. There's also on our forums, that's where the most people are. There's a link in there. You can get them from the store. You can write a customized um, a signature line, whatever you'd like me to write in it. I sent one out this week. A guy wanted me to you know, wish his dad happy birthday. Um, but if you don't care about any of that stuff, you can get them faster through Amazon. Just go to Amazon, um, search uh, Robbie Denning or uh, Mule Deer. It'll come up, and um, uh, you can get them from Amazon in just a couple of days. And you know, the, the, the book is, is pretty inexpensive compared to a lot of books that are out there. It's, um, you know, it's under $30, and um, uh, it, it paperback. I wish I could have done color. I love color. I just couldn't afford to swing it on my first book, right. maybe the next one. But, but yeah, people, people get out there, and anybody who wants to leave me an Amazon re- review, those, those help a lot. I really appreciate it. Perfect. And uh, I'll put the links to those in uh, on our post that I'll put on, on our website when this podcast goes live so guys can jump in there and, and shoot right over to them. Oh, so. Greatly appreciate that, man, because, yeah, you know, go. I'm just a wage earning guy like everybody else. So, you know, the wife's pretty happy when I get the book report sale at the end of the month and <laughs> sold some books. So. Heck yeah. No, it's a, it's yeah, a good it's... book. I mean, I've read a lot of them. Um, Yours, I, I feel like your methodology fits closest with with what I've kind of learned over the. I mean, I learned a lot from your book too, of course. So, I mean, it's it's one of the one of the very top ones I would recommend to people if you're interested in in you know in the experiences of a of a really experienced deer hunter. Well, I, I appreciate that, you guys, and I think we can all learn from each other. I've learned from you two today, just, you know, how you hunt your country and some of the, the experiences that you have. And so that's why I started my blog on Rockslide, too, just to, just a chance to just share. So, mm-hmm. you know, guys can follow that blog as well, too, because I, I can post in real time on the blog. You know, I always have – it's all mule deer stuff or gear related to mule deer. So if guys want to go to rockslide.com, subscribe for the blog, um, you'll get to hear – hear me blabbling blabbling away there all the time so thanks you guys i appreciate it yeah thank you thank you that was fun